Welcome to Out With, the podcast that takes you beyond the headlines and beyond our borders. I'm Hala Mohideen and today we're traveling to Iran, a country that's been in the headlines here in the UK, largely due to the persistent efforts of one Richard Ratcliffe. Now, he is the husband of Nazanin Zaghari Ratcliffe, a British-Iranian woman, and the couple have a daughter, Gabriella. Now, during a trip back to see her parents, Gabriella's grandparents, Nazanin was arrested by Iranian authorities, who accused her of espionage, charges the family vociferously deny. Now, Nazanin has been in jail since 2016, and her husband, uh, since that time, has been leading a campaign for her full release. Now, that campaign has gone all the way to the top of the Foreign and Commonwealth Office with varying degrees of success, and Richard Radcliffe is currently arguing that his wife is an innocent bargaining chip in a wider conflict. Now, this is all happening, of course, at a rather pivotal time for Iran, after a landmark nuclear deal was signed with major world powers, things were looking up for the Islamic Republic. However, since Donald Trump became US president, many things have changed, with sanctions being reimposed on the country and the spectre of being shut out of the international community looming large once again. So what is going on in Iran? Is it the pariah state uh, that Donald Trump claims it is? Or is it indeed a country trying to come in from the colds? And above all this, why is an innocent British woman being held in jail? Lots to unpick, lots to, to, to find out about. Uh, to help me unpick all this is Sanam Shantier, a British-Iranian journalist and the host of Middle East Matters on France 24. Sanam, it's great to have you with us. Thanks for joining us today. Hala, thank you so much for hosting me. I'm very excited about this conversation. Right. Well, first up, Sanam, we only really hear about Iran in the UK press, largely due to, to the efforts of Richard Radcliffe, who's been really trying to, to secure the freedom of his wife, Nazanin. You're a British-Iranian journalist. You work both in Iran and uh, in Europe, in France. Uh, tell us, what do you know about this case and what are your impressions of it? Hannah, as you rightly pointed out, we're talking about a British-Iranian woman who worked for Thomson Reuters Foundation. Now, what's particularly interesting is that um, this organization has been extremely careful to refer to her as an aid worker because the foundation, of course, is a philanthropic arm of the agency. So they want to make sure that none of us get it wrong. We don't refer to her as a journalist because that's when it becomes even more intricate in a country like Iran. Now, I think you mentioned this, she was given a five-year jail sentence because she was accused uh, by the Iranians of uh, trying to overthrow the establishment, by, uh, she was accused of espionage, and of course these are charges that her and her family have vehemently denied. Now, something really sad and upsetting about this case is that last month she was actually released very temporarily for three days to spend time with her young daughter, and actually her return was even more excruciating because after a few days, she had to go back. She suffered from panic attacks. She has experienced a lot of both emotional and physical problems, numbing of her body, and it's really starting to take her tolls. Now, you mentioned that this has gone to the Foreign Office, that it's being dealt with at the highest level, but there have been a lot of mistakes actually made by British diplomats. We'd actually previously heard from Boris Johnson, who was the then 
Foreign Secretary saying that Nazanin was indeed, and this is what Nazanin has been accused of in Iran, Hannah, uh, was indeed actually training Iranian journalists, which in, an, in a country like Iran would be deemed suspicious, especially if she's working for organizations like Thomson Reuters for Zigzag, which is uh, a charitable arm affiliated with BBC World Service, which she previously worked for. So when you have someone like Boris Johnson come and say, actually, she may have been training journalists, and that's giving the Iranians even more reason to keep her behind. Johnson, Johnson later came out and, and said that he'd made a mistake, but I feel like the Iranians already had something to go along with when they already had these uh, charges that were essentially piling up against her. So t t tell us what this Thomson Reuters Foundation is, because for, for a lot of us, we, you know, it's not especially clear. We hear Reuters, you think news agency. Um, so, you know, if she's working with this company that has a massive news agency attached to it, is there not some journalism involved? Let me explain exactly what it is, and I can explain this very well because I used to work for Reuters. I was with them for seven years. So Reuters is Thomson Reuters. There was a merger. It became Thomson Reuters after they joined this Canadian uh, firm, which was Thomson. Um, their headquarters are run out of London, and they've got various other cities across the U.S., and they're a global organization. As you said, they're a news agency. Us at France 24 use their material as well. Now, the Thomson Reuters Foundation, this is something I spoke about earlier, is the philanthropic arm of the agency. So actually, um, they don't tend to do a great deal of journalism. Their job is to train other journalists. So it's a charitable arm. And so she worked for them previously. She was affiliated um, and this is what the Iranians are accusing her of, zigzag, which is linked to the BBC World Service. Um, they actually say that they found pay slips given to her by this organization. The Iranians say that they have evidence, they have emails that she's exchanged about the work she did. And she was indeed, apparently, this is what the Iranians are claiming, training these journalists in Iran. Now, why should that be an issue? We are all given training as journalists, right? But the problem is... An organization like the BBC in Iran is seen as an opposition network. The likes of the BBC, there's Voice of America, which also has a, a Farsi network, a, a Persian-speaking network, which is a language of Iran. You have uh, other channels which are run externally, like Man or Tour. Again, all of these are deemed as opposition, seen as the enemy of the state within the country. So automatically, when you have someone that's affiliated with them, let alone training other journalists in Iran, they think that you are indeed and the paranoia sets off, you're trying to overthrow the Islamic Republic establishment. So the big question is, is she innocent? Is she not? This is something that Nazanin herself, her husband Richard, that you've spoken about extensively, entire family, that they're sticking to her guns, Allah. They're saying she's innocent. She didn't commit any of this. She was merely on holiday. And of course, the Iranian establishment is saying something completely different. Um, but I mean, it's certainly not the first time that we're seeing a case like this in the country. So... She may well have been training journalists out there. I mean, this, it, it, is this a case where you can't... Who do we trust when it comes to this? I mean, who, who's, whose side do we believe? She's been through the, the courts. Has there not been due process? Yeah, I, it, so she was actually um, given the five-year jail sentence in 2016. And um, the, a, a lot of um, critics of Iran say that there have been kangaroo courts. This is what they refer to them as. That there's not sufficient evidence to actually... Uh, convict this woman. And I mean, even if you see the coverage by Reuters itself, 
I mean, it, it's very unbiased coverage. They're saying that she and her family claim that she did not do this. And this is what the Islamic Republic is saying. I think it's very difficult. I mean, for me, it's a heartbreaking uh, event because, of course, she has this young daughter. She's been separated from her. But the child who's innocent, very innocent in all of this, Gabriella, can't leave Iran to be with her father, Richard, who lives in the UK. Um, and so she's being brought up by her grandparents. So she's even lost the grip of the English language. She can mm. no longer really communicate with her own father. So it's all very devastating. But as journalists here, because I didn't know this woman personally, we have to report both sides of the story, as you know, Hala. On the one hand, we say this is what she and her family are saying. On the other, this is what the Iranian establishment is saying. But there is a possibility. And actually, uh, there were some interesting developments um, this weekend. There was this extraordinary propaganda film that was released by Iran's ultra-conservative uh, revolutionary guards that revealed that it's possible that someone like Nazanin and other dual nationals may be caught in infighting in the country. So. Uh, some critics are saying that that is the case, that these dual nationals are being used as a pawn in this bigger political game. Well, well talk to us more about this. Um, it, you know, it's, I guess, impossible for us sitting here to determine whether or not she is innocent or otherwise. But as you mentioned, she is far from the only dual national being held in an Iranian prison. Why is that? And is there more to the fact that uh, the, these people are being held? They're being held there for reasons other than perhaps what they're being accused of having done? Far from the only dual national indeed. But today there are around Allah, 30 dual nationals that are in prison. There's a very well-known case of a father and a son duo, the Iranian-American. So there's an American may be familiar with the case. Then Namazi is also being accused of espionage and collaboration with a foreign state to overthrow the Iranian establishment. There's, a, there's another very, very, very well-known case of a, of a man called Abdul Rasul Dori Esfahani, who was actually an Iranian-Canadian involved in the nuclear negotiations, which is somehow mind-blowing because on the one hand, he's part of the establishment, on the other, he's being accused of espionage. And the list really goes on as a result of that UN special rapporteur to Iran has filed a case saying that these issues need to be dealt with. And how there are some critics, there are human rights activists, people who say that the reason so many dual nationals are being uh, detained in Iran is because in the country, for those that may not be familiar with the workings of the Islamic Republic, there are, there are different factions. One of them who are known as the certainly more reformist camp. They belong to that of the Iranian president Hassan Rouhani, his foreign ministry, the foreign minister Javad Zarif. They came along, they wanted to create a detente with you international community. They wanted the nuclear deal. They wanted to improve um, social freedoms for the young. They wanted to improve the human rights situation, not all of which, of course, they had jurisdiction over. And on the other hand, you have the what we call the ultra-conservatives, the hardliners, who are very much against that. They vehemently still believe in the values of the Islamic Republic. They're very anti-American. They didn't want the deal because they felt they were losing too much. And I believe, um, and this is something you and I are going to speak about later, by Donald Trump walking away from the nuclear deal, that second faction, the hardliners, have actually been empowered. And it so happens that the judiciary, so the people that decide what happens to Nazanin, belong to the hardline camp. So there's this ongoing conflict back and forth about both domestic and foreign policies. And some critics are saying that there are these dual nationals that are being used as a pawn today in this immense political game 
so that um, this faction of Iranians can gain what they want out of uh, their dealings with the international community. So perhaps um, Donald Trump's hardline policies, if I could just re-summarise, uh, some are arguing that by pulling out of the Iranian nuclear deal, he's emboldening the, the more hardline elements of the Iranian uh, of the Iranian establishment, and that is what you know. Donald Trump, in effect, his actions could be making it harder to get people like Nazanin Zaghari Ratcliffe out of jail. I believe that if I had to put my editorial cap on here, that's what I would say. I've been covering Iran for for twelve years now, very extensively, both in and out of the country, and um, I, I think. I was always a little bit more optimistic than some of my colleagues. I believe that the uh, nuclear deal which Iran signed with the world powers would open Iran up. And if a country's opened up um, when it comes to its business things, then would have to be opening up when it comes to its human rights as well. So they can't just take money and keep imprisoning people, right? So I really believe that something good would come out of this. And certainly when it comes to the country's economy, which is collapsing as we speak, Hala, and it's all very devastating. And, I, and, and I've often compared uh, the US hawks, uh, the, the Republicans that were against the deal, to Iran's hardliners. They come from exactly the same school of thought, which in itself is immensely ironic. It, it, it certainly is. So t t tell us about the, let, let's just go into the detail a little bit about this, um, th this dichotomy that you have in Iran. You have hardliners and you have more progressives, the more reformist kind of people. Just give us a, a general overview of how that works for, for you know, Many of our listeners won't know that much about Iran. What what constitutes a hardliner? What constitutes a reformer? And who has the upper uh, hand at the minute? Yeah, I mean, I'm not a fan of. Uh, I, I, I was never a fan of breaking down the political system into this. But right now, I feel like, in the same way that your viewers may be familiar with U.S. politics, uh, opinions in U.S. becoming polarized. Take that very idea and implement it in Iran. The exact same thing is happening. So when President Hassan Rouhani was initially voted in, and then a second time again uh, as the country's president, he was taking over from another ultra-conservative, Mahmoud Ahmadinejad, under which there were no real sort of conversations between Iran and the international community. We had the most hard-hitting sanctions on Iran. The economy was breaking down. There was a great deal of... Um, detention of dual nationals, Rouhani came along. And as I said, during his presidential campaign, he gave the average Iranian person hope, Hala. You could hear people going back to the streets, going back to the ballot boxes, especially the young. In Iran, over 70% of the population are under 30. That's incredible. It's a young country that wants to modernize, that wants to adapt. Rouhani came along with his team of very educated, somewhat westernized cabinet. You know, Iran's cabinet at the moment has more people that have studied at the U.S. university than any other country in the world. Of course, not America itself, but any other country in the world. So you're talking about politicians here who, whilst they believe in the Islamic Republic, can also understand how the West, how the international community operates. And they try to implement that in their policies, as I said, with a nuclear deal by bringing foreign businesses into Iran, by creating employment within the country, by allowing women, as you know, Iran is the Islamic Republic, the hijab is compulsory, but by allowing women to expose a little bit more hair, by most recently allowing women to enter stadiums. These were 
does that really matter to the Iranian person, Hannah? Because what we see on the television, a lot of these images of women wearing black veil and shouting to death, death to America and death to Israel, it exists, but that isn't the core of what our country stands for. Okay. So when you have a president that comes along and makes these promises, people went and voted for him. Twice they voted for him. But then, of course, there's the hardliners, ultra-conservatives, who, because there have been very practiced relationships with the United States since the Islamic Revolution in 1979. Remember, we had the U.S. hostage-taking. We've had the Americans back in the 50s organizing a coup d'etat against Iran, overthrowing our only democratically elected uh, prime minister, Mossadegh. This goes back a very long time. There is a real problem of trust and the hardliners, as you said, the ultra-conservatives don't believe they can trust the other side. And in fact, some of them benefit from the sanctions from the black market. So these are the two different groups. If we had to very, um, very simply, very dramatically cut the, slice the country into two. And right now, that political infighting is, in my opinion, at an all-time high. The two of them can't to meet in the middle. Absolutely. And I guess for, for people who are listening to this from the West and, and can see the, the, the advantages and benefits of opening up and uh, allowing women to wear what they like and allowing trade and, and, and encouraging the, these kind of things that were supportive of the more reformist agenda, if you like, we can kind of see that. We can kind of, uh, you know, see why that makes sense. It's difficult in the West to see where the hardliners are coming from. It's difficult to see where the, the advantages are in um, signing a deal with the US. The, the, the disadvantages are, rather, the disadvantages are to opening up. I mean, for you, we have the what we call the revolutionary guards. I spoke about them earlier, talking about the propaganda footage that they released, talking about the political infighting. The revolutionary guards are very loyal to Iran's highest power, referred to as Ayatollah Ali Khamenei. He's the country's supreme leader. His position is more important than the president, Hassan Rouhani, and any other position in the country. The revolutionary guards are very loyal to Hassan Rouhani, and to Khamenei even, I'm sorry. And to break that down simply, Hala, when the country is closed up, when Iran is unable to do any dealings with the international community, which is happening progressively now, Trump has even warned other allies like China and India and Russia to stay away from Iran. When that happens, then what happens? Something like a black market opens up in Iran. And that's how the revolutionary guards, the hardliners, the ultra-conservatives start benefiting because they're going through a back door now and everything falls back in their hands. Okay, so but is this a system that, that, that right now this system is working for them, not the country? I mean, remember the sanctions, uh, Iran was opening up, so it's, it's it, these sanctions, the latest US sanctions are very recent. Another round of even more draconian sanctions will be imposed in uh, November, which will be on the country's oil sector. So this is slowly starting to happen. Certainly happened during the Ahmadinejad era. Remember, during Rouhani in 2015, that nuclear deal happened and the country started to open up. So we're slowly going back to that now. Okay, so um, I guess my question is, I mean, Iran, it seems to, to, be, to be in quite a, a state of change. We have this tension between two, two different sides. Um, we have this tension that one side wants almost to remain closed off, whereas the other wants to open up. It, when you listen to what Donald Trump says and how much of that you can take with a pinch of salt or not, but he seems to be of the view that he's on the side of the Iranian people. He wants the, the tough love to encourage people to overthrow the current hardline regime. I mean, is there a chance that it could happen like that? 
Listen, Hala, no one in Iran, listen, you have people who are against the establishment, you have people who are still believing in the monarchy which existed prior to 1979. You have people that belong maybe potentially still to that so-called green opposition movement that we had back in 2009 against the disputed elections. Mm. You have people now that are actually taking to the street because of the economic sufferings, because the, 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 the economic hardships have ramped up tensions inside Iran. So you are seeing sporadic protests across the country because of everything from shortage of food to water to medicine to, to corruption within the country. But the one thing that, I, I, in my opinion, because I go back and forth to the country and I do believe I speak to Iranians on a daily basis, none of them believes that the likes of Donald Trump and Benjamin Netanyahu, the Israeli prime minister, are doing it because they feel for them. They know that it's all about politics. And Trump himself has got the primary elections coming up. He has to appease his supporters. And actually, this is as unpredictable as Donald Trump has proven to be. The one thing he's doing is delivering quite a lot of those promises that he made during his presidential campaign. Okay. So Iranian people believe that he cares for them. They know that it's to do with his own policies. And that's why he's brought along people like John Bolton, who are very much about bringing down the Iranian establishment and they have some of the highest positions, him, Mike Pompeo, in his uh, establishment. So he doesn't care about the Iranian people. I don't think any of us can say that. OK, so, I mean, I, I'm very conscious of the fact we've winded this out now well beyond uh, one sort of British-Iranian mother and, and, and her particular situation. Let's, let's bring it back to Nazanin because... I guess we could sit here for hours, Sanam, and go on about this and explore the different arms and legs this conversation could grow. But tell us what you think will happen with Nazanin. How do you see this playing out? I can't. And I feel like if anyone says to you today, tomorrow, yesterday, that they can predict what will happen, they are lying specifically when it comes to Iranian policies. It is immensely unpredictable. I had a friend, a very good friend of mine, Jason Rezaian, uh, an Iranian-American dual national. His case was massive. You had the likes of Obama calling for his release. John Kerry was personally the U.S. Secretary of State at the time, involved in his release, and he was finally released, reportedly as part of that Iran nuclear deal. And for, for most of us, it came as a surprise. We didn't know how long it was going to be, uh, and Jason was going to be in prison for, his wife was in prison. He was the longest held dual national American-Iranian in, in a prison. It was just a devastating case. So the outcome would be impossible. Is, it, is, it, is there a possibility that if the Brits try and somehow breathe life into the nuclear deal, is it possible if they try and maintain some sort of a business relationship with the Iranians, which looks increasingly dim, the chances of which look increasingly dim today, that Nazani will be released? Maybe, but can I predict... Sorry to cut you off. Do you think that? Do you think that her fate it very much is tied to this Iranian nuclear deal? I, no, I don't. I'm saying, is it possible? Maybe. No, I absolutely cannot say one way or another, Hala, whether her fate is linked to the nuclear deal, her fate is dealt with the hardliners, her fate is uh, uh, linked with the business ceilings. I can't. I can't claim any of that because I, like everyone else who, who talks about Iran, observes and follows the country. We. It, that would be a wild assumption. Okay, so we just don't know. It's very unpredictable and uh, we're just going to have to keep an eye on it. But listen, Sanam, thank you so much for talking us through this. And if we want to keep listening to your reporting, Sanam, you are on France 24. Sanam, of course, is the host of the Middle East Matters weekly magazine show. And uh, Sanam, you are on Twitter as well. We can follow you at Sanam F24. Is that correct? 
Absolutely. Thank you very much, Hala. Okay, listen, it's been great chatting with you. Thank you so much for speaking to us about uh, Iran, about uh, Nazanin, and of course, about many other things as well. Sanam, it's been great talking to you. Thanks for joining us on Out With. Absolute pleasure, Hala. Thank you. Thank you. And uh, do keep remember to keep following the Out With podcast. We are uh, being released every Monday morning. Uh, so do subscribe and we will hope to chat.